Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Unlike human philosophy, which reimagines the world in its image, imposing the ruthless and violent ego of liberal and conservative idealism, Scripture takes the world as it is, with unparalleled attention to facts on the ground, co-opting social structures to serve its agenda. The first produces violence against the other side. The latter calls all of us to crucifixion for our enemy's sake. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 344 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When people come to this passage in Matthew, they make much ado about nothing with respect to the difference between the akonia and the function of a slave, Thulos. Again, the Roman household is essential for understanding what is happening here in Matthew and what Jesus is saying about the station of service versus the universal status through baptism of slavery. In the Pauline matrix, and it is a matrix, at all levels of Roman hierarchy, whatever your station you carry out your station as an obedient slave, whether you are a patrician or a deacon. It's important when we hear these terms that we don't think of diakonos as an alternative to thulos. A servant may be a slave in the household, and ikonomos is a slave in the household. You have different stations that all pertain to the master of the household. One would think that Jesus' disciples at the time of the Romans would understand the Roman household, yet, as human beings, they want to figure out what position they deserve in the household. And Peter was wondering, and then the sons of Zebedee were wondering, and then the rest of the disciples were wondering. Everyone was jockeying for position. It was like a story I was listening to where, you know, the family is coming to their vacation cabin for the summer, and all the kids are waiting at the door, and then as soon as the door opens up, they run and claim which room they get. This is how the disciples are acting, that their kids running around the house trying to grab the best room. And Jesus is saying, you don't get a room to lounge in. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about 
what position you have in the kingdom in order to get the work done of the kingdom. How do you get the work done of the paterfamilias? How do you get the work done of the household? That's what the economia is. It's the work of the household. What part are you going to play in that? And it's not assigned by you and whatever successes you've shown. You don't show a resume at this interview. It is the head of the house who assigns their station. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. What did they hear? They heard that the sons of Zebedee asked mommy to see if Jesus could get them a good job in the kingdom. And they did what any one of us would do in our own self-righteousness— They overstepped the bounds of their station as brothers of the sons of Zebedee, as fellow disciples of Jesus Christ, their master. They overstepped and judged before the time. Remember, this is the gospel of the wheat and the tares. What right have the ten to judge the two? They have no right. And this is beautiful numerology because, again, the Romans counted in 10. So although we're still talking about the 12 who are the heads of the 12 tribes, which is a metaphor for the numbering of the people of Israel, when you separate them out and refer to the others as the 10, you're playing on this idea once again of the nations. So remember that the Jew has no right to judge the Gentile, and the Gentile in Paul's letter to the Romans also has no right to judge the Jew. I love that saying in Galatians that God shows no partiality. There's no difference between the two and the ten. None whatsoever. So they have to be careful not to assume that because they were lucky enough not to be embarrassed by their own mother, that that somehow makes them better than the sons of Zebedee. This goes along with what you were saying a moment ago, Father, about the different stations in the house. We like to think that when we have ranks in the household, the ranks of the different stations, right, I get to make more decisions as I move up in the ranking. It's like a child, you know, when I get to be king of the world, then I'm going to make everybody do this. What they're saying is that their will is going to prevail as opposed to right now where my will never prevails because I'm a child. The disciples are getting this wrong because in the kingdom of heaven, they never exercise their own will. They're always exercising the will of the Father. That's the only will that functions in the kingdom of heaven. If you're following a different will, you're functionally in a different kingdom you're functionally following a different king. Now, a clever ambiguity here in Matthew's writing is he doesn't say that they're indignant against the sons of Zebedee. It says against the two brothers. Now, the two are brothers with each other biologically, but as fellow disciples, they're also the brothers of the ten. Are they indignant against these two men who are biologically related to each other? Or are they indignant against these two who are their own brothers to whom they should show filial devotion? The problem here is there's a split, and it's not caused simply by these two overstepping their bounds. It is now being exacerbated by the ten overstepping their bounds and thinking that they have the right to judge their fellow slaves in the kingdom. 
They don't have that right. They don't have the right to be indignant. They don't have the right to be upset with them. These are their brothers. As fellow disciples of Jesus, they have to respect the will of the head of the house and not be indignant and be oppressing their own brother. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. This is not just a fact of the Gentiles. This is a fact of Israel. This is a fact of the Romans. This is a fact of the Europeans. This is a fact of the Americans. This is the fact of the family in which you grew up, whoever you are listening to this podcast. This is a fact of the human condition. Let's begin with facts. People have authority and they use it all the time. Sometimes they use it correctly. Other times they use it to glory in the flesh of their neighbor. But human authority is a fact that cannot be erased by any philosophy, ideology, or delusional idealism. It is something to be dealt with, and we need to think this way. Because if we get carried away with idealism, then we start debating whether or not Jesus wants us to be a servant or a slave and what it means to serve. And then we concoct an idea of service which has nothing to do with the terminology of the text. And we pretend we're not exercising power. And then we abuse each other exactly in the same way the Gentiles abuse each other in the critique of Jesus. So the critique of verse 25 is not that people have authority. It's that people exercise authority as though it belongs to them, and they lord it over each other. And if you know anything about the New Testament, by now you should know that James and John, in the narrative arc of Galatians and Acts, the pillars, Peter, James, and John, glory in the flesh of the weaker brother by lording their authority over them. That is what we're talking about. Is ultimately the authority of Paul's gospel the power of Peter, James, and John over the Gentiles? Is it their authority? So that's what's at stake here. It's not about the Gentiles, actually, in this section. It's about the abuse of power in the church, which is represented by the pillars. So you might say it's about the Gentiles in the sense that Paul is addressing the Gentile church and Matthew, but Matthew's critique here is dealing with Paul's conflict with Peter, James, and John. I just have to double down on what you said, Father, that power is a fact. We can't pretend it's not there. We can't wish it away. We can't socially engineer it so that it doesn't function. I mean, there's always power. As soon as my cow produces more milk than my neighbor's cow, I have power over my neighbor. As soon as hail falls on my field and not on my neighbor's field, they have power that I don't have. When I have more milk than my neighbor... I can either use it so that 
my neighbor becomes so weak that I can just come over and steal his cow and have nearly double the amount of milk. Or I can use the extra milk that I get from my cow and give it to my neighbor so that my neighbor can be strong as well. But I can't say I don't have power. I have to say that I'm going to use power according to the will of my father who blesses one cow and curses the other cow. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's all I can do. We translate this ethne as Gentiles in the Bible, but this is the nations. It means everybody, all the nations. Every group of people. And the words katekirevusin and katexusiazusin come from the roots kyrios, which means Lord, and exousia, which means power. And Paul keeps talking about how these characteristics belong only to the Lord, the Lord. But we among the nations all want to be the Lord. We want to make the decision. We want to be the one who says, I deserve this milk and my neighbor does not deserve this milk. I'm going to use this. I'm going to lord this over. I'm going to overpower my neighbor because of this power that was given to me from heaven. If you're exercising your station in this household, you have no power. Now you can leave. If you want to use your power, leave the house. Use your power of You're welcome. Anything you'd like to do. But you have to leave the house because in the house there's one will. And this is just a struggle. As you said, Father, this is a struggle between the mother's will and the sons of Zebedee's will and the will of the ten. And then we had Peter before that. I mean, it's will versus will versus will. I mean, I was recently telling people if I had to summarize the theme of the entire Bible, it would be the problem of power. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. This expresses the teaching, the last will be first and the first will be last, and it completes this proposition of Scripture, which again reflects the reality of facts on the ground, that the one who has more responsibility has more burden. People think of the position of the leader as something that they want to aspire to. But if you are faithful in your execution of your duty as a manager, as a teacher, as a pastor, as a political official of any kind, in whatever organization you serve, in whatever situation you find yourself, if you've been given the responsibility to exercise authority over others, and you do so as one under authority, you end up becoming everybody's slave. Because the authority, and in Greek here in the New Testament, it's the same root, as you said, as power, exousia. So there is no distinction between power and authority and the way that people play the game in contemporary discourse about power in a social context. We are talking about the one from whom all power comes, which is the Father of Jesus Christ. All authority, all power come from one chair, and you are not allowed to use that power in any other way except that which he ordains in the law, in his instruction for his household. 
So if it's true in general terms that a person who acts and conducts themselves correctly in a station that holds power finds themselves being forced to serve the very people they thought they had authority over, how much more so is that true here in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus pushes it to the extreme that if you are in this first position, you must be last. This is not an invention of the New Testament. Again, this is a fact of how power works when people conduct themselves in a principled manner as opposed to a selfish manner. You don't need the New Testament to see a leader act correctly and therefore slave for the sake of others. There are plenty of people who don't read the New Testament, teachers, public servants, corporate leaders. There are plenty of people in those positions who are not familiar with the teaching of Jesus, who because they conduct themselves in a principled manner following at a minimum the guidelines that their organizations lay out for them, they find themselves having to work hard for the sake of everybody they're supposedly in charge of. We have to really understand the fact of the situation and not try to pretend that we have an idealistic morality here that we're being asked to follow. Jesus is not concocting an imaginary reality that we have to impose on the world like one of Plato's philosopher tyrants. We don't need any more of Marcus Aurelius or Alexander the Great. We need people who, in their station, hear Scripture and conduct themselves accordingly, because Scripture understands the rules of the game on the street, and it is teaching you to understand what is already there in a different way, in a better way, that's better even than the principles that a leader follows, for example, in managing their classroom or managing their team or leading their church. Because in the framework that Matthew is setting up, Jesus is saying, ultimately, you have to die for the people that you've been given charge over. You have to be the opposite of the rulers in the Old Testament. You have to be the one who is consumed so that they can live. That's the distinction here. This is such a wonderful illustration, Father, of the strong line of demarcation Jesus is drawing between his disciples and the rest of the nations. You are going to be different. You know, there's always Christians, we have to be different than others. And it's not because you like to sing songs about how glorious God is. That's not what makes you different. What makes you different is that you give up your will and you give up your strength and you give up your power not give them up and say, oh, who am I to exercise my power? That's not what it is. I mean, you have to use this power that exists objectively. I mean, if my cow produces more milk than my neighbor's cow, and I think myself humble by saying, oh, who am I to have more milk than my neighbor? Uh, well, that's the same as saying my neighbor's a dirty son of a gun and I'm not going to give him any milk. It's the same thing, functionally. The neighbor gets no milk. But if I say, he's a dirty son of a gun, and I give him the milk anyway, it's better than sitting at home and saying, oh, who am I? I'm so humble. Who am I to say that I have more than my neighbor? 
it doesn't make any sense. I was talking to a friend about languages, and at his church there were some people who were very humble and they wanted to do good for the immigrants who were coming to their town and so decided to teach English classes at their church. And my friend said, you know, if you actually want to do something nice for them, they actually don't like to speak English. They prefer to speak Spanish. So if you want to do something for them, learn Spanish. You take the class. Don't make them take the class. They have to work all day. You guys are sitting around trying to figure out what you're going to do with yourself. This is the trap of humility that people fall into. People, according to what Jesus is teaching, if they want to be members of this kingdom, they have to give up their power. They have to give up their rights. And this is the thing that's most strange about Americans is that I hear Americans saying, I'm not worried about getting sick from COVID and dying. I'm not going to wear a mask. It's because they have a right not to wear a mask. Anytime an American starts to talk about rights, they're just as bad as the sons of Zebedee. They're just as bad as the indignant 10. You aren't allowed to say, I have rights and be in the kingdom of heaven. You can't. You can't, there are no rights to be claimed in the kingdom of heaven. This is a way that Americans apply their will over others, you know. People apply their rights and they carry guns to the state capitol, and then you have the majority of people who then are indignant about those people and then protest those people. The best thing to do is to do your work, use your power in a way that benefits others and strengthens others and allows them to be lifted up and you serve them. You cannot make yourself into a god as though the station of first is for your glory. Because ultimately there is only one ego in Isaiah, and it is not ours. This is the novelty of what Scripture is saying. It's the anti-idolatry school, that the only way to ensure ultimately that we don't express or manifest ourselves as deities is martyrdom. It's the ultimate canceling out of the false god. That is why the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That is why Jesus will give himself as food for the faithful, as we say in the liturgy during Lent. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, where Caesar boasts of being a son of God, which ultimately is the station of Jesus Christ, which is subjugated to the will of his Father. Here, Jesus doesn't declare himself anything. Only the Father can call him Son of God. He proclaims once again that he is just another Ben-Adam. So why would he be interested in his own glory if he's just a Ben-Adam? This is how Jesus shows us the way forward that he exercises the authority of his station in obedience to the will of the Father for the sake of the flock. Remember, we said early on in our discussion of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the shepherd king. He's not the Roman king. He's the shepherd king. It's an undoing of the tyranny of David in the Old Testament, who began as a shepherd and ended up as a monster. Here, Jesus is walking the narrow path 
according to the precepts of his father's teaching, and he never forgets his place as a slave, and that is how he serves. It's important how Jesus discusses again what it means to be first. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, not to be ministered to, but to minister to others. This is done in a very specific way. He gives his life as a ransom, meaning it is by his dying that it's going to allow others to become members of this household. That is what it means to be ransomed. People think he died so that we could be free. No, he died so that we could be members of this household. We could be freed from our former master in order to become members of this household under this master, that master being the father of Jesus. That is what it means to be the disciple. You give your life so that they can be members. It's not enough for me to give my extra milk to my neighbor. I give all my milk to the neighbor when my cow has more milk than his. This is what it means to give up all of my power, all of my authority. It all belongs to God, and there's one rule in this kingdom, and that is that one lays down one's life for the brethren. That's it. It's that simple. And that's what it means to be a slave. Your identity doesn't mean anything. Only your station means something. And we were just listening to one of our brothers yesterday talk about this. You know, in the military, it's nice because nobody cares about your identity except for you're a lieutenant, you're a captain, you're a major. That's the only identity that matters in the military. Your family, how nice you are, how the, all that. No, no one cares. You have one identity, and that is your station in this household of the military. That's the same here. But in the military, your job, no matter what station you have, is to lay down your life so that the rest of your brethren can live. You don't say, oh, I want to make sure that everybody has a nice snack. No, you lay down your life. And Jesus expects this among his disciples and the citizens of his kingdom before the members of the nations. This word litron is a different word than Paul uses in Galatians. The verb in Galatians is exagorazo, which is translated in English to redeem, to ransom, to liberate. And the word litron is also rendered the same way in English. And I don't want to lose this. Although the term is different, it's referring to the same gesture, which is to purchase something. He is going to spend his life in order to purchase you as a slave. You know, people misuse and abuse this concept of the ransom, as though Jesus is somehow buying you and setting you free, and you no longer need money because now he's paid for everything, as though the whole purpose of the Bible is for you to become a self-absorbed victim of affluenza. No. He is going to give away his life so that you can be purchased from your current master and become the property of a new master. Again, it's exodus. If you're not hearing the New Testament with the entire narrative, you don't understand how these metaphors work. He is freeing 
many peoples from slavery to one master so that like the people of Israel rescued from the tyranny of Pharaoh, all can be rescued from the tyranny of Caesar and brought into a new reality in the wilderness under the authority of God's instruction. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.